Coming to you from Podcast Detroit, it's Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Herd is a collaboration between the Hungry Dudes, Nick Drinks, and the Detroit Optimist Society. Each week, we interview industry professionals about issues related to food, beverage, and hospitality. Please take a moment to subscribe to Herd through the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, SoundCloud, or however you subscribe to your podcasts. Write a review and let us know what you think. For additional content, including awesome videos and photos, visit HerdPodcast.com, like Herd Podcast on Facebook, and follow at Herd Podcast on Instagram. We appreciate your support and hope you enjoy this week's episode of Herd. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. I'm Joe Hakeem, and tonight I'm joined by Jason. Hey. Vato. What's up? Nick. Hello. And our special guest, sommelier for the soon-to-be-opened super high-end steakhouse in Detroit, prime and proper, Liz Martinez. Hi there. Thanks for being with us, Liz. Thank you. So, Liz, let's start with uh, your kind of – your journey to Detroit. Uh, Take us through your – some of the places you've worked at and where you got your start. Okay. Um, I guess my real start uh, was at a family-style Italian restaurant that I worked at in Denver, Colorado, which is where I was born and raised. Um, I really started loving Italian wine. It's a family-style restaurant, kind of a crazy um, all-verbal menu. Um, It was at that Ooh, point, hold on. What's an all-verbal menu? That we we weren't presenting um, menus to the guests, so oh, okay. uh, we basically were kind of guiding them through the menu. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's family style, so you'd kind of like quiz the guests a little bit and ask them, you know, what they felt like eating, and then sort of steer them in the right direction. Huh. Um, but a lot of Italian wine there. I moved to San Francisco in 1999 um, with my son, and I guess the. Um, the most important restaurant that I worked at there was a restaurant called Boulevard. Uh, I was there when uh, Nancy Oakes received her first Michelin star. Um, it was right when they were first coming out. But it was a really fantastic restaurant. Um, our uh, wine director, John Lancaster, was very inspiring to me. So um, I started thinking that maybe that might be a route I wanted to take. I was a server at that point. Um, very nice restaurant, high end. I learned a lot about food and wine there. Really great culture. How how does the the Michelin the awarding of a Michelin star affect business? Is it affected immediately? Um, I don't even know how that really affected us because we were crazy busy every day, anyways. But you know, it definitely, you know, people took notice. You know, they were talking about us. It's Nancy Oakes is a self taught chef in San Francisco. She's a very interesting woman. Just kind of took it upon herself to start uh, learning how to cook. She is married to Bruce Adele of um, Adele Sausages. So it's kind of like this whole thing going on there but you know it's san francisco so you have lots of beautiful produce and all these really interesting ingredients to work with and that combined with her technique was just you know a a really interesting restaurant it was beautiful and um a a great place to learn a lot about wine and food so um i moved to chicago i guess it was probably 11 years ago um my first job uh was with rick bayless um i was running topolabampo and was the assistant som there so that was a really interesting time. He, um, it was at that point that he um, became the first top chef master, so it was a little crazy. 
Um, so I, that affected business more absolutely. than the Michelin star. Absolutely. But, you know, I mean, it was, at, at that point it was a little bit different because you're getting a lot of like foodie groupies and things like that. And, you know, people that weren't really necessarily interested in coming in and doing our tasting menus versus, Sign my book. you know, just yeah, yeah, coming in and trying to hug him and, you know, things like that. So I, I was sort of like security guard as well. I guess I should probably put that on my resume. <laughs> but um, in, in between Denver and Chicago, then when you your server, you had the the bug in you to, to get into wine. Did you start taking wine courses? Did you start? In, I've, I've actually never taken any no. wine courses. Um, most of what I've done is just reading and kind of uh, tasting wines and studying. And um, at the point when I was in San Francisco, getting ready to move to Chicago, and I was realizing that this was the path that I wanted to take, I um, basically was reading anything I could get my hands on. Um, uh, my sh- uh, husband at the time was a chef from France too, so we did mm. a little traveling to. He's from the Loire Valley, kind of went around there, went to Saint-Cerbois and some things like that. But um, so yeah, it was. I think that most of my wine um, education came from when I worked at Toblebampo. The wine director there is super knowledgeable, um, and she really kind of like mentored me. And you know, we did a lot of. We would be. We would taste the wines in the back uh, kitchen with Rick Bayless. Basically, each course of our tasting menu, we'd go drink ten, fifteen wines to see what worked best, and kind of you know it was a really interesting thing because you're you're pairing wine with different chiles and kind of like understanding how that whole formula works. And um, so that was, I would say, the most the most interesting time in my career for those kind of things. So you narrowed it down to 10 or 15. How would you grab those 10 or 15 <laughs> off the shelf? Um, well, the wine director of the restaurant had this sort of interesting formula. You kind of know what types of chiles work with different mm-hmm. grapes. So you could kind of like break it down that way. You know, for instance, like Syrah with Wajio is perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Pasilla Chile with Zinfandel. Those were, that was something that worked really well as um, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc or Muscatel with like a green tomatillo sauce or something like that. You know, those were all things that just kind of like naturally worked Mm -hmm. and you would sort of play off of that kind of foundation and kind of take it from there, I guess. Neat. For for people that don't know, just to go back one second, Tavato's question. (laughs) So is that standard for – is it standard for people to take courses to become sommeliers? So for a guy like me, so I could just start eating and drinking – well, rather drinking wine, but (laughs) I mean um, (laughs) – But I mean, is that is that the norm? Is it normal for people to take uh, classes and go that route, or is I that think, something I think that a lot of people could go can... either way? You know, I mean, I have taken the exams, I am certified, right. but to get to that point, you know, there are people that do prefer taking the courses and they learn better that way. But I was in an environment where I was learning every single day, and I was kind of like reading every day and just kind of. I, I think I was a little obsessed for a while, <laughs> but um, you know, being in a, that environment and kind of working around that every day was something that was instrumental in that, I believe. What were the kind of things you were reading? Is it books, magazines, yeah, everything? Yeah, books, magazines, whatever I could get my hands on. You know, um, when I was taking my intro course, at that time they were actually giving us books. Um, it was a book called Sales and Service for the Wine Professional by Brian Julian. And that was, you know, it sort of covers everything. It's very broad. You know, it talks about all the different regulations in Germany and kind of breaks it down that way. But also, like, as a SOM, especially when you're taking your certified you have to um, know your spirits as well and kind of know some classic cocktail um, recipes and things like that. So that all-encompassing book was really important, um, and I, I read that back-to-back. Back. I was, you know, like I said, a little obsessed at that point. So Wasn't there cigars on the test at one point, too? Uh, there, are, I, there were cigars, but okay. I, that's like upper level. I think that right. might be advanced or right. even master. Hmm. 
do wine people is there like internet forums where wine people argue like bourbon people do because that's one of the things i love oh, about yeah. <laughs> bourbon is trolling forums and everybody's got an opinion about what's the best and what's not the best Wait, are you trolling sucks. the forums <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm asking I can't for tell a you friend. My right now, but. <laughs> are, are there are there forums where like people like complain about pairings and stuff like that? Like I can't believe you did that garbage pairing like uh, last week with that chili. You take like, your star away. Yeah, <laughs> I, I haven't seen any any that were you know not that deep, not, not that, that deep, deep trolling. Okay, All right. you definitely you know go on different um, websites and you can see the back and forth and it's and it's all really interesting. You know, it's different people's perspectives. You know, I think it's all educational and you know so I, I think one of the things especially working with rick bayless is that ethnic food sometimes i feel like gets looked over when it when it comes to wine pairings um around here in metro detroit like we we have very few places that focus especially like mexican or vietnamese or asian or any of these places don't fo- have a very curated wine list why do you think that is and um like how was working? Rick, did Rick Bales have a vision for for the? Rick really loves wine. Okay, he really loves wine. Um, and um, you know, it was kind of a hard sell sometimes when you were trying to get people to do the wine pairings. But I think that you definitely could see, um, you know, that the interest and in, and in sort of um, opening people's eyes up to that was something that, you know, it was really interesting to be able to kind of turn people onto that. Um, we did travel uh, to Mexico a couple of times. I was able to go with him on, I think, three or four of the trips. And so we went to Pujol, we went to Paxia, and we did their wine pairings as well. And that was pretty eye-opening, really interesting. But they were using all Mexican wines. So. Wow. Yeah. That is something that I have not, maybe I've not looked for. But I mean, like, are there some big Mexican? Yeah. There are. Okay. Uh, I mean, not, not big um, by any means. You know, at that point, there Purchasable was... Purchasable in Michigan, maybe. What's that? Are there are there some available in Michigan? Yeah. Okay. Um, but I think um, so. Basically, the best Mexican wine, in my opinion, um, comes from Baja. Mm. So it's a very um, similar climate. It's Mediterranean in climate, but there's also an interesting kind of population of Italian immigrants and people like that there that understand the climate and see that there's potential there. So you'll see things like Tempranillo, Syrah, Merlot. Like those are some of the best examples that I've seen okay. out of that area. So, and so from Popolo Bampo, you went to. Um, I ran an Italian. I, I hadn't run my own wine program at that point, so I uh, ran an Italian wine program at a small uh, restaurant called the Florentine in Chicago for a while. And um, you know, it was a little quiet for me, especially after working at all these crazy restaurants and kind of like, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. So I. <laughs> um, I decided to uh, pursue the job at the Purple Pig, and they were really excited to have me. So um, I took that job on, and that was that was a, a big learning experience. Um, it's a very large program, you know, including ports and cherries and everything. We have ninety glass pours there, or we had, Whoa. I had. So that was what I was managing. And um, what years no, were you there? I was there. Let's see, up until the end of March, I guess, four years. Four years. What is that? 2013? Okay. No, no one said math was required. Yeah, I don't. Can, no, I'm just curious if I ate there when she was there, and I think I did. Yeah. So. I mean, it's, you know, it's a pretty extensive program. No yeah. domestic wine whatsoever. So coming here was kind Whose of a, thought was that? Um, I think that was just the original, kind okay. of like it's Mediterranean food. Oh, got like, it. Okay, got it. Let's kind of stick with that, you know, and, and that makes sense to me. You know, I, I, I feel like 
bringing domestic wine into a restaurant like that does doesn't mm-hmm. seem. There were uh, there were wines that I selected because I knew that they would be more appealing to somebody that drinks domestic wine, but. You know, that was just kind of part of the job. You have to try and make sure that you can please everybody and not necessarily educate everybody and try and force things on people. So, Did you struggle with costs because everything was literally oh, no. imported? No. Okay. No, no, no. In fact, um, because of the volume, you know what I'm mm. saying? Like I was able to sort of streamline that pretty quickly. Okay. Um, it is, you know, when you're doing that many glass pours and you're doing some more obscure uh, wines, you have to kind of like understand what's moving and what's not moving, you know, and kind of take it from there. Mm-hmm. So that was that was an interesting lesson for me. But, you know, one of our hottest sellers was a Croatian red, um, Bobic. You know, I mean, we we it surprised me sometimes what people were willing to try. You know, like it was mostly tourists there, but a lot of adventurous people would come in there. And um, my staff was great. You know, I really tried to sort of be a cheerleader for them and um, motivate them to try and create experiences for guests. So we, you know, we played around a lot and it was that was a fun part of my job. So, so let's step back and the, so the purple pig is uh, a, a very quite famous, right? Yes. And, and so it's right on uh, is it on Michigan Avenue. Michigan, Michigan Avenue. Avenue. Okay. Yeah. Um, on so the water, right? It's right on the river, right? It's not on the river. No. Nope. Never mind. Really? <laughs> People was. think it is though all the time. You're not the only person to think that. So, um, that so was the yellow pig where Nick ate <laughs> <laughs> ill-advised adventure <laughs> to the waterfront. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, Medi- okay. Mediterranean focus. Um, in, in terms of like business, like how many covers and like what, what were you, what what kind of like weekly volume were you doing? Um, well, uh, we had our. I keep saying we. I don't work there anymore, but. Um, Purple Pig had their busiest night um, last summer when I was there during Lollapalooza. Mm. And that day we did 1,120 covers. <laughs> yeah. So we were basically getting our ass kicked every day. So I did that for four years. And, and so you, you said you had 90 glass pours. Yeah. And so how – on a rotational level, like how often are you rotating in and out and like you're, so you're running out of something, rotating something in? Um, and, and what was the range of prices as well? Um, I, it was a lot of juggling, uh, mainly because of the volume. You definitely had to anticipate that people were just going to run out of things. Like mm-hmm. people were excited when they got a glass pour there because they're like, "Great, we're going to run out of this," you know, because we want to sell this. Or, um, but you know, in Chicago, you can also haggle a little bit. So I was able to get some really good pricing and kind of talk to people and you know, flex my muscles a little bit. Um, so that was really fun, but. You know, like I said, you know, you're running out of things left and right. It was it was not an easy job, um, and you're definitely always trying to think of something interesting or you know something that you can get the staff to get behind. And so it was hey, a lot of juggling. It is an industry style question. All right, when you're doing glass pours, are you doing a uh, every every server has a specific kind of level that they're going to on the glass? Do servers have options to overpour a little bit? Are they no? In fact, we. We had those little jugs, you know, the five ounce, oh, eight okay. ounce. You bring it out the table and pour yeah, it. Yeah, and you can, you know. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, I mean, we were doing that table side, um, except for bubbles, which um, when I got there, they were pouring them out of that, and I was trying to do some bubble preservation. So I, I nixed mm. that and told them they had to pour it right into the flute, and that was the end of that. But um, what you're asking about the glass pour pricing, um, you know, sometimes you could get some really good value from like Portugal and things like that. So, so you, you could get an $8 glass of wine there, sure. But then again, I was also using the Coravin, um, and my most expensive glass pour was probably El Nido, um, which was $50. So, <laughs> so I tried to like cover that whole range, yeah. you know, 
I always kind of believe in that something for everyone type mentality. You know, like I said, I don't like to force things on people. I want I'm here to create an experience for people. So how do how does someone navigate? Like, I'll use Hopcat as an example. Hopcat has a hundred and some odd beers on tap, right? And and their their menu is essentially a like a Bible or a, some type of large like burdensome menu. And and it's hard to kind of you know get through all the, the the types and figure out what you like and the differences between sours and stuff. So how is with ninety glass pours? How do you present that to someone, especially someone who might not know a lot about wine, and kind of tell them it's going to be okay? <laughs> we'll we'll guide you through this. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there was definitely it, it, a lot of it had to do with the education of my staff. Um, you know, I had um, wine class every two weeks. And I would just kind of, you know, we'd taste through things, talk about the tasting notes, and then I'd be like, who's drinking this? You know, who, what, you know, if somebody comes in and they're asking for this, will they like this? You know, and we would kind of like have an in-depth discussion about that. So we would know kind of like how to navigate people or steer them in the right direction, um, which is something I'm definitely going to have to do at Prime and Proper because I have some some weird things on the list. So we'll see. I hope it works. But. So if you also think about going to a um, a restaurant that has a deep bottle list too, um, for wine or, or a deep cocktail list. or a deep the cocktail sugar, list or, or a deep whiskey list. Yeah, I mean, you when, know? when people come to the sugar yeah. house as a bartender, I mean, sometimes you just shut down. And you're like, there's 130 cocktails here. Like, I can't deal with this. And then it's up to or you have the a bartender yeah. to. Yeah, well, sure. Or some people come in, they already know what they want. Right. But, you know, if you haven't been there before and you come in and you could look at the list and just be like, ah, wow, this is amazing or, you know, in a, overwhelming rather. It is amazing and overwhelming. And then just be like, you know, hey, work me through it. And then that falls on, like you're saying, training people up so that they're creating the experience for the guests to say, great, now you're in my hands. I want you to trust me. I want to get the get you the right experience, you know. Yeah. And it's, you know, I've, I've always said, too, that I think – you know, creating that confidence in your guest is how you're going to get them to um, listen to what you say, and that allows you the opportunity to create experiences for people. I mean, obviously, not everybody's going to be adventurous, so sure. it is what it is. But, a, you know, I, I'm here to make people happy. and that's, It's a challenge, but a reward as well. Right, once you get exactly. that, once you earn the trust of somebody, you've got it. So that's how I, I always I try that. to approach it, you know. So now you're in Detroit. You're yes. Prime and Proper. And yes. Prime and Proper is um, a restaurant that. I, I think that we we haven't seen the likes of ever, right? The the, the kind of scale and and scope of uh, of what's being presented, at least in in the kind of lead up, is pretty amazing. For yeah. the people not as smart as you, can you tell people like give people the background on Prime and Proper? Well, that's that's what I was going. That was my question. <laughs> oh, good. See, all right, all right. <laughs> so yeah, so the, the um, so the background on Prime and Proper. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're asking me. Okay. Um, no. Um, well, my boss is Jeremy Sasson. Um, he owns Townhouse Detroit and Townhouse Birmingham. Um, he's a very, very smart man. Um, I think that he's trying to do something different and kind of create a hospitality culture. Um, you know, it's definitely going to be part of our brand. But um, seeing this from the ground up has been really interesting because we're, I'm seeing how we're going to try and do something different for our guests, um, like enlightened hospitality, if you will. Um, the, Dan- the Danny Meyer. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. But I think that, you know, um, there is going to be a lot of development, you know, people that don't actually haven't actually experienced that before, including our servers, bartenders, people like that. Uh, so we're going to be developing a lot of staff. Um, but, you know, it's, 
it's taking a look at things and kind of seeing how we can create the best experience for our guest, you know, from beginning to end. And we've literally looked at everything through a microscope to do this. You know, it's like kind of taking things that we all know because we have a really, really cool team of people that, you know, like people that have come from other places in the country or, you know, um, our lead bartender for cash only, Jonathan, moved up here from New Orleans. Like, we're, we're you know, we're definitely gathering experience from all over the country and just kind of trying to do something different, I guess. So. What's kind of the – is there like a guiding principle for like the menu or kind of like the styles you're going after or um, – well, Walter, our butcher, right. um, he is going to be doing dry aging on premise. Um, so we'll have, you know, these really kick-ass steaks. Yeah. Um, first of all, we have some crazy grill that I've only seen pictures of. It's That's an epic photo. That's it really so is. <laughs> and, you know, I've kind of like they've tried to explain to me a little bit how that works, and I'm just going to let them do that. I'm, I don't necessarily <laughs> need to be a part of that. But um, So we have that. We, um, and our uh, chef, Mike Barrera, and Ryan Prentice are both really talented, um, you know, and they're definitely going to be trying some new techniques and things like that. So we'll have steaks and, you know, all the all this, the steakhouse classics, but they're going to be doing like a dry aged duck, you know. There's going to be a lot of really cool sides. And I don't I, – I tasted a lot of the food, you know, really big tomahawks and lamb chops and things like that. And, um, yeah, it was really good. They're talented. So I think the uh, one of the th- with a steakhouse wine list, you you have uh, I I at least have a focus of like you know big California cabs and like these kind of like wines that I myself wouldn't want to necessarily order a bottle of. Yeah. And, um, so how do you dispel that? Uh, that that was actually kind of hard for me, um, especially because I'm definitely an old world wine drinker um, because I haven't worked with domestic for so long. Um, I definitely had to re-educate myself in terms of domestic wine, what people are drinking, what's relevant, what's not relevant, you know, those things. Um, Jeremy was also able to get me some back vintages on some things, and I worked really hard at getting some back vintage cabs as well. So, you know, you are going to see a lot of steakhouse classics on the list. But for somebody that wants to come in and try something old world, I mean, I love Brunello, so there's a lot of Brunello on the list. Um, I think Sangiovese is really great with steak, so you're going to see a lot of that. Um, I'm bringing in some back vintages of Chateau Moussar um, because I think that'll be really interesting with some of our dishes as well. And what's what's Chateau Chateau Moussar is uh, an iconic Lebanese producer. Um, I think uh, they've been producing wines in the Bacaw Valley for... 70 years, something like that. Um, but really? it's really interesting wine and it's gone through a lot of history, um, like including the civil war in, in Lebanon. So, you know, you hear all these different stories about that, but it's a, usually a blend of uh, primarily Cabernet, Sanso, uh, sometimes you little, see a little Syrah in there, you know, but that's kind of the focus and they age really well. Um, it's sort of a geeky wine, so I'm really happy that I was able to get some of these back vintages because if you've ever spoken to the winemaker or anybody from the winery, you know, they'll tell you these stories of like, you know, one of the people that worked there opened a bottle one night and set it next to his bed and then he would try it every night for the next 30 nights and it would still be evolving. Hmm. Really? All the way through. Wow. And so, you know, it's a wine that has great ageability. Um, you know, it's not for everybody, for sure. If people come and they ask for that, I'm going to have to sort of tell them, you know, okay, well, I, I need you to know what you're getting into here, you know, because this is special. This is this is something that I had to work really hard to get for us. So, so, so on, I, I'm sorry, on that point, though, so are you 
physically there, like then every night to be able to educate the guests and, and I'm going to be there like on, literally on the floor selling wine, doing like anything technical, um, five nights a week. Wow. Probably more than that once we open. So, and is that the case in most? Uh, you know. I, I, there's wine uh, restaurants definitely not um, there's a lot of people uh, or restaurants that do this sort of hybrid role I call it SOM manager um, so you know they're still working service but they're also in charge of wine and um, curating the list um, I was actually talking to a SOM here um, a couple of weeks ago and he was like this is this is something really special for Detroit because nobody has done that here like there's nobody that's just hired a dedicated sommelier just to do that job mm-hmm. Um, up until now. So, you know, he kind of likened that to um, sort of like what's going on in Detroit right now, like, you know, how things are growing and how there's a rebirth and how there's actually a, a place that's committed to to the wine and the program and just kind of so. Is there going to be what you mentioned earlier at the, the Purple Pick? Is the approach something for everybody at Prime and Proper 2 given the what we've talked about, the luxury? Yeah, the- yeah. Um, I mean, you know, like I said, it was kind of hard for me to get re-educated again in um, the domestic wine world. But I also know that people that are going to come there and they're going to be looking for that. So I'm looking for the best examples that I can of, of you know, domestic Cabernet. We have a pretty extensive Bordeaux list as well. Um, but um, I also tried to put a little bit of my touch on things. Um, so, you know, like, for instance, one of our glass pours is going to be this is Sirico. I, I brought you guys to yeah, taste tonight. Talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah. Talk, yeah. Um, so this is uh, a wine a wine from the island of Santorini. Um, the grape is called a Sirico. Um I think it's – I liken it to some really just pristine, precise Chablis, you know, no oak. Um, it's almost like licking a rock sometimes. You know, it's a lot of like lemon oil, really great acid. But the cool thing about um, this wine is, you know, it's, it's on this tiny island – in the middle of the Mediterranean and it's like so hot and so sunny there but it's also the place where there was like one of the largest volcanic eruptions in human history Mm. so if you go there the soil is literally three stories deep of volcanic ash mixed with uh, sand and pumice stones and there's no irrigation on the island so the only way that these um, vines get any water is from the nocturnal fog that kind of soaks into this ash on the soil so um, that's really cool but also they have to train the vines into kind of a basket in order to protect the grapes because it's so hot and so sunny so they're literally training the vines into this sort of like I guess maybe one and a half meter across radius um, sort of basket and it protects them so it it creates obviously lower yields (laughs) so there's not a lot of it but I, we're going to have a raw bar. So I was mm-hmm. like, I have to have this wine. And Detroit gets very little of it, but I kind of locked that down for us. So so you, so you didn't bring it in, but you're probably locking in a lot of the... I locked in, okay. uh, yeah, I locked in what they have because I guess Detroit only gets four cases a year. Holy moly. But I was there last year, so I have, you know... I, they know that that um, if anybody's going to be able to sell these wines sure. here, it's going to be me. So, it's a great so story. We're, we're drinking one of 48... Bottles that came Indeed in. Indeed, you year. are. That's not so. Yeah. So I'm going to take my time with it. Yeah, but it, <laughs> but the, but <laughs> there. <laughs> well, it was that good. I mean, it's it's good. No, it you know, it's salty. Good. It's yeah. like lemon oil, like mm-hmm. really great acid, and it's crazy that it's so hot there, and it still maintains that acidity. So, 
that's just one of the things, but you'll definitely see things like that on my list, which I understand is going to be a little bit of a hard sell. Um, but I really hope that I can get the staff to stand behind them and uh, sell them and <laughs> try and do get those adventurous diners and get them to try something different. I, don't. I mean, that story right there, if I was sitting down eating and you told that story, and maybe I'm just a sucker, I would buy the crap out of that bottle. I, I'm, I'm a sucker for narratives. Yeah. I mean, that's like, I, I feel like that's how you sell wine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about the stories. So, you know, and that was like one of the most beautiful places I've ever visited in my life. So. But you, but but you've got like you said, you've got to count on your staff. Sometimes you can't always physically be in every single place at every single time, right? So like somebody else, you have to trust or train to be able to communicate that same. Yeah, I mean that's not going to be an easy part of my job. But then again, you know, it's it's like we were talking about earlier, like being able to um, get your guests to gain confidence in you and um, just really showing them something different and. I, it, that's exciting to me. Yeah, you know that's what I'm in this business for. Um, so the uh, recent food and wine article, and you say the uh, so the best way to get your to know your town's wine inclination is to drink all around town, <laughs> and I really love that. Um, tell us what you learned about Detroit and how it has informed the prime and proper menu. And you're probably still drinking all around town, right? I, I still am. <laughs> yes. Um, well, <laughs> thank you. Um, well, you know it's it, a good it, problem. It, it is. It is. It is. I need to go home more often. But um, I really liked that people were willing to take chances on some of the wine lists here. So you know, for instance, um, when I first got here, uh, I live really close to Wright and Company, um, and I really respect what Cat does there. So I was really kind of that was the first place that I looked, and you know, she sort of was doing the same thing that I was talking about. Like you might not. We might not have a Chardonnay by the glass, but you might like this instead. And so she was serving a Savoie White from from France um, instead. And that's you know those that's the kind you have to be able to build that bridge for people. And so I thought that was really interesting that she did that. And then I went around to a few other places, and I was you know I, I think the cocktail scene is really fantastic here. But the wine lists, you know, there are people taking chances, and I think that um, Detroit's still in this place for wine where. Um, there's there's not a whole lot in the market. I think that the um, the vendors were sort of playing it safe for a certain time, and now it's getting better. Um, but you know, people are definitely kind of playing around with these more obscure varieties, and it's kind of like that's what they had here. So, you know, how do we how do we create that bridge for the guest and try and like make them try something different because this is what we got. So, for people that might not know, does. Wine does not face the same restrictions. It's not part of the Liquor Control Commission. We've talked earlier about how our market suffers sometimes from being able to have access to different spirits and the range of spirits that other larger markets have. So can you talk just a little bit about, for people that might not know about, what what is the process of sourcing a wine or how you have access to anything? It's up to you or what what are you counting on? Well, there's a few different things. Um, this is a controlled state, though, okay. for wine. So you can't necessarily haggle, <laughs> which I got really good at in Chicago. Like, oh, I don't know if I should buy this. <laughs> I, if it was only a dollar cheaper, you know, maybe. <laughs> so I can't do that here. Um, but, you know. Uh, but if it's not in the book and you bring it in, can you haggle on price then? Not necessarily. I mean, okay. there's a set price. Um, okay. But, but they get nationally or something. Well, yeah. I mean, for, for Detroit. And I, I understand that that's, in a way, trying to like um, make sure that people are making their money or whatever here. But I feel like it definitely affects 
people mm-hmm. maybe not that well because you know uh, the consumer ends up maybe spending more money because people can't get a better price on their glass pours. Maybe yeah. I don't know. That's speculation. Yeah, you can only bring in so many cases. What do you mean? It's a felony to bring in over individually twenty yeah, six yeah, cases. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you mean by bringing in yourself? Versus so when I say I, I don't okay, mean me as a driver, right. I mean so you there's something so this guy let's say this guy wasn't available in Michigan and you wanted to source it for your restaurant. Well, I've definitely used my relationships okay. um, with my suppliers um, that I created in Chicago. So uh, you know I I do have a lot of wines that I'm bringing in that aren't in this market yet. Um, you know, like those Chateau Moussard wines, um, the people from Broadwent, Brent actually like reached out to the vendor and was like, hey, I heard Liz Martinez is there. What can we do? And I was like, sweet, let's get some back vintage Moussard in. And that was a little bit of a, I'm still working on that, um, you know, but it's, that's just one of the things. Um, Ted Diamond, who imports um, all the Greek wines, has been uh, really great to me as well. Um, one of the Sauvignon Blancs that I'm serving by the glass, there's um, one vintage in the Mark market right now and I didn't really feel like that was going to be the best expression to try and bridge that gap for the average consumer so I had them bring in a different vintage just for us so I'm definitely kind of like you know playing around with that Um, but you know it's a lot of it has been kind of talking to people in those relationships that I created Um, it's been fun you know and I and and I, I I hope I'm not biting off more than I can chew but we'll see what happens I guess so you said average consumer, and, and I I have to ask. So Purple Pig is a kind of like a I don't want to say a tourist destination, but you kind of imagine there's a lot of tourists there. Um, Detroit is less, much less of a tourist city than Chicago. Uh, the the kind of average consumer that walks into Prime and Proper has to be willing to spend a certain amount of money, right? Right. And so, how does that color a wine list? But but to. to Add to that though is Detroit more of a destination city for like high end restaurants, right? Your local neighborhood people aren't going to go to high end restaurants all the time, so it becomes a destination point, which is kind of touristy in a way. I, I yeah, we're definitely going to be, I think, a special occasion and destination place. But when I say the average consumer, I mean when people come in asking for say a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, they're they're looking for a certain flavor profile, and. That's what I'm trying to achieve. I'm, I chose a Greek wine from a Mindian in northern Greece, which I feel like has that kind of citrus and kind of like green notes that you would get in um, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And that's how I hope to translate that to the guest. In lieu of exactly. New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Exactly. So you, you've chosen not to have that on the list. I have no and... New Zealand wines on the list. Oh, I have okay. no South American wines on the list. It's like, it's like a place that you know somebody comes in and asks for Jack and Coke and they're like, oh, we don't carry Jack Daniels, but let me – you know, introduce yeah. you to this other kind of, you know, whiskey that uh, may satisfy your palate. Right. Exactly. Is there like everything else, like every other whiskey? <laughs> 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 Sorry, but I mean, that just slipped out. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know a lot. Of, I know a lot of people that are like that. Though they're like, oh, I want a Miller Lite, or I want a Jack and Coke, or I want a Bud Light, and you go to you know places that are a little bit more crafty and or more specialized we're like yeah, we don't carry that but we carry this or hey do you have coca-cola no we don't have coca-cola but i have this uh specialty cola from blah 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 it's called pepsi <laughs> <laughs> that was just kidding it's but not I mean, the like, same it's not the same <laughs> <laughs> that is we've talked about it before but like you know 
for me, when, as a as a bartender at Sugar House, if somebody came in and you know were uh, was overwhelmed or they just weren't sure, they're you know if they order Jack and Coke, I would be happy to give them a Jack and Coke with a smile because almost to a T, what would happen every time is you know they would get what made them happy first, and while they're enjoying what they were comfortable with, uh-huh. you know they would look around and everybody around them is having a great time. You know, there's conversations going on with bartenders or amongst. Of the guests talking about that people are trying new things and there's all this interesting stuff going on. So, you know, once they're comfortable, they're more way more likely to be able to say, "Well, cool, you've had that. Like now, let me let you try. It. Let me introduce you to something else. Right. Step out of your comfort zone for a minute, and then, boom. Oh, now I never knew I liked this. I like this. Now the whole world is open up to me oh, again. Boy. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, fair enough. <laughs> Figuring out how to how to open people's eyes to different things, and you know, I, I I think educating guests is really kind of condescending in a way. You know, I don't really like that approach to things, and um, so I really think that just kind of like getting people to try, or maybe like here, try a little sip of this. You know, let's see if you like it. If not, we'll find you something else. But kind of knowing which direction to go in and your staff knowing that is really important so and it's going to get easier and easier with repeat customers because those people trust you because they were there the first time and the harder part is going to get the people who are there for that one time special occasion that might never get out and you know it's like oh do i go to prime proper do i go to applebee's (laughs) (laughs) i don't think that's the uh it is for some people i mean I mean, come on, how many birthday celebrations for some people are Red Lobster and Applebee's? Like, it's a big deal. So to get them to, you know, go out, I, I try all the time to tell people, like, you're going to spend 100 bucks at Applebee's or Outback, okay? You know, go outside. Are you? That oh. depends. Is Crab Fest going on at that point? <laughs> if, you go to, if you go to Outback and you get yourself a steak yeah, and a you lobster, can, you, can drop some money Outback, yeah. you know, with your onion and your drinks, you're going to spend 100 bucks. And they don't realize that, okay, I'm going to spend 100 bucks here. And maybe I'll spend 150 bucks over here. They don't realize that when they go out. But this is what's comfortable to them. It's what's in this, in all the when the when the suburbs you know blossomed with all these like stores and strip malls and this and that. Was that an outback pun? I like it. I like it. Awesome. Unintentionally. Touche. That was so Britsky of me. <laughs> but, you know, uh, to, to get them to come out and say, okay, we'll have your celebration over here and here's why. You know, this is a little bit better because we have this uh, um, dedication towards our bar program and to our wine program and we can talk to you about it and make you feel comfortable and then you get them as a repeat customer again for the next celebration that they can ask for. Yeah, I mean, I really hope we can do that. I think that we will be able to um, and I think the staff that we've we've hired is I mean, we, we intentionally looked for people that we felt were going to embrace the, the hospitality culture um, and that was something that I was I, I really pounded into people during the interviews you know I mean, you should not hit people at interviews I, <laughs> <laughs> probably, I was looking just to verbal. see if they could take it or <laughs> not it's probably know? the can wrong you take way it? can you take it <laughs> I'm sure there's an HR rule being violated <laughs> can we being, cut that part out being <laughs> hit at the interview <laughs> So you brought another wine with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, my, my glass is empty, so let's talk about Nick's, this. Wait, it's Nick's glass. Joe. It's all Nick's, about Joe. Nick's glass is I'm, not I'm enough. savoring the one of 48 bottles. So. <laughs> That's the same glass. Maybe there's less bottles of this one. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> uh, um, so the next wine that I brought is – so the first one we tried is going to be available by the glass um, at yes. Time and Proper. Oh, so excited. Um, and this wine is going to be available by the bottle. 
Um, it's Nebbiolo from Lombardia, an area called Valtellina. Um, I really like the wines from this area because it's a completely different expression of Nebbiolo, and Nebbiolo is one of my favorite grapes. But they do – it's, you know, it's mountain wine. It's, it's right next to the Alps. It's right on the border of Switzerland. You know, sometimes these wines kind of go back and forth on whether they're Swiss or Italian. But um, they do a couple of interesting styles of wine there. Um, two DOCGs. There's the Valtellino Superiore, um, which can include any number of five crews that they have up there. And then there's uh, Sforzato di Valtellina, which is um, – Sforzato is sort of an Amarone style wine. Um, they actually let the grapes raisin for 100 days on straw mats um, in the cool alpine air. And um, so Sounds what, relaxing. I know. <laughs> I feel like taking a nap. <laughs> but uh, so they dry out and instead of like creating more uh, uh, concentration of um, – sugar and everything like that in the wine and fruit, it actually kind of accentuates the structure and the acid and the aromatics of the wine, which Nebbiolo is, I, I think it has some of the most incredible aromatics. Can you hear that pouring? Yes. Um, so this forsato, that's not what we're drinking, but this forsato is really interesting because it kind of focuses a lot more on the aromatics and the structure. Um, this one is from one of the crews there called uh, Sasella. And the producer is Mamete Prevostini. So this is also an area where there's like super steep uh, terraces, and that's where they're growing the grapes. Um, you know, they have to use helicopters sometimes to get the grapes. It's so hard to um, it's so hard to get to these grapes that you're literally they're spending. I think I read a statistic that was fourteen hundred man hours per year per hectare. That's how specialized this is, and most of it's done by hand. You can't really get like mechanical, you know, things up there. It, it's it's really hard to make this wine, but um, because Nebbiolo doesn't really do very well in a lot of places, you know, Piedmont and Valtellina, I think you know this is just it's it's a little bit more evolved. You don't have to worry about it being twenty years old. It's something that you can drink sooner rather than later, and still get a little bit softer tannin. But um, you know, I always get a lot of like really fantastic um, like tamarind and, and rose and like purple flowers and nebbiolo and I, I just feel like it's one of the most dreamy things to drink and this is this is a really good example of that so if I if I walk into prime and proper and I'm looking for what, what is this in, in lieu of is this in lieu of something or is that is this on its own uh, it's on its own I guess but um, if somebody wants to drink some nebbiolo and they don't necessarily want to you know spend a hundred plus bucks on Barolo or Barbaresco. This is something that you could drink right now. You know, this I think this is going to be like, if I remember, like sixty five bucks or oh, something. Nice. Oh, I mean, it's amazing. like yeah. it's great. It's evolved. You know yeah. what I'm saying? It's I, I I I looked for wines that you can drink now for the most part on the list. You can't necessarily do that all the time on restaurants, but this is something that's going to be great with our food, like with our our duck that we're going to have. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be great with steak, and you can drink it now. So what I to circle back to something we talked about at the beginning of the episode, and what I hope you guys really do is, you know, you're going to go in, you're going to have this wine list, and I know you said you're going to educate the the staff, and the staff's going to talk about it. you're going to have this great wine list. It's going to have something like this on it. I'm going to look at it as I'm going through, and I'm be like, all right, I can't read that word. I don't know what that word means, uh, and I'll skip it, even though the price point looks great, uh, and pick something, and then the server doesn't say. Uh, you know, doesn't 
not question what I picked, but maybe talk about like at the beginning of it, like, hey, before you take a look at the wine list, let me highlight a couple things that you might not know about. Sure. Right. And I think that that I mean, this this wine's incredible. Absolutely so, incredible. I would I would love to have this wine. Seeing that name on the menu, I just probably wouldn't have been I would just not knowing about it, feel uncomfortable. Uh, you know, well, asking, and I, mean, I mean, asking like, what was this taste like? So there's a there's a couple of things that I'll say about that. You know, I definitely we're going to have the style of service that we're going to do. There's going to be one server based on the beverage um, portion of the meal, and there's going to be another server that's going to focus on the food part of the mm-hmm. meal. So there, you're going to have two servers waiting on you. One of them is going to be beverage focus. So the way that I'm going to teach everybody is like, obviously, there's going to be things. Um, on the list that people are not going to be able to pronounce, especially because we're going to have Xinomavro, Ayuriko. We're going to have a couple of other weird things on there, so people are not going to be able to say that. But the way that I've broken down the list is um, not necessarily by region either, but um, by, you know, there's there's some that are broken down by region, but things like Nebbiolo and Sangiovese and Cabernet, mm. like those are going to be in their own category. So, um, you know, if the beverage focus server is not there, I'm obviously going to be walking around and I'm always the person that's going to come up to the table and just initiate conversation. You know, like, hey, um, can I help you with the list? Is there anything I can, you know, explain to you? Or would you like me to point some things out to you that I like? Or what do you feel like drinking tonight? You know, there's always ways to initiate that conversation. And and if somebody's looking at the wine list, I'll just go up to them. It's... So can you can you talk about so the concept of having a beverage server and a food server is kind of neat. Would the beverage server come out first and maybe recommend a cocktail or an aperitif? Or? Yeah, that's kind of how it's going to be broken down. Okay. Um, I think that um, uh, initially you're going to want to try and get them both there at some point mm-hmm. really close mm-hmm. to each other at the beginning of the meal. But the beverage server will come up and, like you said, initiate conversation about cocktails or anything like that. Um, and then in the meantime, you know, the food server can kind of like get bread service started and things like that or um but that you know if you if you break it down that way then you have at least the the um beverage server can sort of mark for service you know bring the wine glasses over you know start getting the table ready for you know me coming over and decanting something or whatever um and then you know the other person's going to be marking each course or you know taking plates and like bringing the right utensils or whatever. But it's going to be that specialized where, you know, I think that uh, there's going to be, it's going to be hard to miss any points in the cycle of service. Mm-hmm. Neat. What, what is the size? How big is Prime and Proper? Like how many tables do, or seats? Um, I think with the patio, it's going to be, um, I think we have capacity of nearly 300. Don't quote wow, me on that's that. That's a good size. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's... That's upstairs. That's, and that's cash upstairs. Cash only is a lot smaller. Yeah, not three hundred. <laughs> Definitely, not. You're, you're not, there's no way you're getting three hundred people in there. But we also have a private dining area downstairs that's oh, cool. completely um, surrounded by temperature controlled cabinets, and that's where all my wine is going to be. I think there's like twenty six hundred bottle capacity down there, so that's pretty cool. So with that that size of a restaurant, the thing with this um, method of service that you guys are going with, my my head went immediately to um, the the kind of length of time you expect a table to be there. Mm. Is there is and I know you're not even open yet. Maybe I don't think you got there soft opening yet. So like, what what is 
is there a goal time already talked about or are you letting people hang out all night um i wouldn't say there's a goal time um but in in particular like most restaurants with any kind of like specialized service you sort of kind of i guess for parties of four you usually expect two hours or so and that's kind of like the mark for you know two people hour and a half four people two hours you know six people two and a half hours that's kind of like just a like for most restaurants, that's kind of what you expect. Any, you know, any nicer restaurants, you know, obviously mm-hmm. not Outback or Applebee's, but um, <laughs> Applebee's has good wings. Uh, out there. <laughs> Shots fired! Shots fired! I will say, chill, don't um, get chilies. <laughs> so, how did your Outback feud start? Well, <laughs> it blossomed from. A... <laughs> no, Nick, I saw I saw you at the Olive Garden with that unlimited bread bullshit that was going on there, and just noshing a bread and salad. There's going to be a cocktail on. Nick's Instagram tomorrow called The Blossom. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tempt me. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, I mean, being able to drive service is kind of an um, important part of that. So, you know, we have two really, um, really skillful dining room managers that are going to be like kind of on the floor pushing that all the time, too. So, uh, you know, it's 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 driving service. And not letting service drive you is always something that I've said about running a restaurant. So, do you have a part in cash only at all? No, no. Nothing. Well, I helped. I helped Jonathan choose the wines, the very limited selection of wines that they're going to have down there. So, so Jonathan's in the room with us, by the way. Hi, Jonathan. I think he has his own bottle of wine. Too. <laughs> he does. <laughs> There's a totally different bottle of wine. So you had the uh, 90... 90 uh, wines by the glass at Purple Pig. Mm-hmm. What are you going to have at Prime and Proper? What are you looking at? We have 30. Okay. Uh, 29, actually. Um, um, there are no domestic wines on the white side of the list whatsoever. And then I have um, our only domestic wine on the reds are um, a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir, and then we have three different cabs by the glass. And that's all domestic, but everything else is going to be, you know, Chianti Classico. Um, I have a Nebbiolo that we're going to do, a bunch of other different things. Um, I didn't do any of the red varieties from Greece on that because I felt like that was a little bit of a stretch. But Do you expect pushback immediately or no? Um, I, I do expect that. Um, but then again, I had to face that all the time at the Purple Pig. You know, uh, if people came in and they're like, oh, no domestic cab, what are we going to do? Okay, well, I'll try this, uh, you know. Tinta de Toro, it's a hybrid grape of Tempranillo from a really hot area in Spain. It's got that big fruit you're looking for. It's, it's got that tannin and the structure that you expect. And a lot of times you would get people to try that, and they're like, this is way better. How did we not know about this? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that's how that's how you turn it around. Uh, obviously, uh, we have a really, a really great um, preservation system for the wine at the restaurant. That I can't wait to play around with because I'm not going to do a Corvin. Um, so, I, I, you know, some of the more obscure wines that we're going to do by the glass, I hope we can kind of get those to move and get people on board. So, do you have a target number of uh, like glass pours that you're going to do? Uh, I mean, I, I don't. I don't think that we should go over thirty. Okay. I, I really don't. Um, there might be wines that I, you know, if it's, it's like Thursday or Friday night and we got a really cool crowd in house, like maybe I'll open something special and hand sell it, you know. And instead of doing something with the Corvin, you know, I want to have that specialized service. Oh well, this isn't on the menu. However, 
You're on the inside. Yeah. That's kind of, yeah. And then you can go to casual. This is some prime shit right here. <laughs> <laughs> we opened this just for you. It could be a nice happy hour kind of thing to do. I don't know. So, so like, we like like mentioned cash only a number of times. What is cash only and uh, how is that going to fit into the prime and proper uh, mold? You know, even I don't know that much about it, to be honest with you. Um, Jonathan, I think, you just like blank. <laughs> once for yes, <laughs> twice for no. Um, I think you you do have to have it's it's you are going to have to be invited um, because the cash only. I that's somehow there's no going to be even though it says it, the name is cash only. I don't think there's actually going to be any cash transactions taking place down there. Um, so. That's all I'm going to so say wait, about right. that. So when you said invite only, there are some bars that do exist around the U.S. that you can only get in with an invite. Right. So that's how this is going to be. I think so, yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Depends on if you're friends with the psalm or not. <laughs> I need to work on that. <laughs> I hope our friendship blossoms. <laughs> can we title this episode Blossom? Yeah, uh, we have to. has got to pay for this. Alpac's got to pay for this action. I, I don't know. After uh, we just tried to steal all their business. Chili's is the awesome boss. Right. Yeah. Is it? Damn. No. Hold on. Chili's is really? That's really? what I still blooming on. You're going to take this from the audience. I told you Chili's. I told you Chili's. I just wasn't going to go there. All right. Well, I was trying to drop it. I was a well, server at freaking Chili's. Fuck out back. Breaking my heart, about Chuck. Chili's, You're breaking right? my heart, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you remember the, what was it, episode two I talked about serving at Chili's? No. <laughs> no, I Did you serve I don't at Chili's? I, I totally was a server at Chili's. Like 200 episodes ago. <laughs> <laughs> Mom, if you're listening... <laughs> You remember when I used to walk to Chili's and, and wait tables there? <laughs> there was a fight in the restaurant. I remember it. It was like it was a horrible. I was sir. Oh, never mind. Never mind. We, I, I've seen fights yeah. in some nice restaurants too. Though, so that working yeah. at Chili's, you know, that's not well, necessarily Luciano that. Had a great yes. Well, oh, that was such a good story. Uh, yeah. Oh uh, well. Anyways. Yeah. Was that on mic? Anyway. Was that off? That was off mic. Anyway, <laughs> anyways. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> what had happened was. Anyone listening have a hint? Can you mail it to Nick Risky? <laughs> I didn't bring it up. God. Uh, so, Chili's. do you have any uh, any say in the townhouse menus? The townhouse wine menu? Uh, program? No. no. Um, I, I don't know if that's going to happen sort of organically. Um, I will say that um, when I first moved here, I was working out of uh, the townhouse Detroit, just kind of like having my vendors come there and taste wines with me. And I could see that the servers were definitely interested in what I was doing. Um, I, in fact, I, I've already told the bosses that I think we should invite them to our continued education classes that we're doing at Prime and Proper because I think that there are people that are interested in um, not necessarily pursuing that as um, their career, but understanding that that's a way that you can um, that you can move forward in this industry and um, it's a way to get more sales and, you know, to instill confidence in your guests. So I think that, that people are kind of seeing that there's a way to do that now. And they see me in there and they're sneaking in and asking me wine questions and things like that. And, you know, that got me excited because I was like, these people want to learn, you know, and I, I, I want to teach them. You know, I'm, I'm not the most knowledgeable psalm in the entire world, but I feel like I can definitely kind of motivate people to try something and um, – better themselves in their life in in this industry 
In terms of advice, is, is the best advice when learning about wine to, to drink more wine? <laughs> I, I mean, it's not, a good place being, to start. Okay. Um, but, you know, if you are going to be drinking more wine, well, it's I, in one of the interviews that we had with a server the other day, um, you know, I, I was like, so what are you doing to, uh, you know, obviously we're giving you, you know, this uh, information, this education. What are you doing to take to take that further? Like, what are you doing at home? And he was like, well, at this restaurant I used to work at, they would let us take bottles home. I was like, okay, so what are they doing beyond that? Are they asking you questions about the wine? Are you going home and drinking the wine and reading about it? Are you, you know, taking notes on, on the, the body and the structure of the wine, talking about aromatics? Like, what are you doing? And he was kind of like, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> and I was like, sweet. Like, that's, that's what you should do. That's how you do this, you know? You just got to... I, I think um, that that you kind of see these people that are actually really getting excited about these things, but you're kind of sh- showing them something that maybe they hadn't even really thought about in the first place. And I love that. So we got to think about it while we're drinking. Hold on a second. <laughs> maybe take some notes. Are, are, is there like a, a notepad with like different, uh, uh, like I don't know, indicators like you said, aromatics or body, and so, are, is there like a notepad someone can download online to to, to take their own wine notes? Um, well, there is um, on the Guild of Master Sommeliers website. They have uh, is that a open? T- is that behind a paywall? No. <laughs> okay, it's it's a grid that you can yeah, okay. actually look at on there, and you, even well, I don't, you do have to subscribe to some of this stuff. Yeah, or listen to their podcast. Um, yeah. I don't know how available the grid is now, but back in the day, you could absolutely just print it up. When I was taking my certified, I printed up a ton of those mm-hmm. grids, and that's basically what you're blind tasting with in your exam. So you go through, and it's asking you to assess the, you know, the floral aromatics of it, the earth aromatics, the structure, the acid, the sugar, and it's basically deductive. So you're going through it and kind of like it's really making you be kind of like a wine detective. You're looking at your clues, and then at the bottom, you're coming up with the answer. So it's really a good way to kind of like take a look at things and really break it down so it is fun and infuriating at the same time. <laughs> let's just leave this to professionals i just want to drink it well, <laughs> i mean honestly like a lot of like, i'm interested in wine very much but a lot of it's like does it taste good like and so you know the, the kind of wine that you're curating like all everything on that list in your mind probably tastes good unless i mean i'm sure there's bottles that maybe you can't open and like yeah really highly because I, I read, I think in the same food and wine article that um, you have like Jeremy's personal collection. Yeah, I like, mean that's some of those like older vintage Bordeaux and things like that. And you know, it's those. I all, all I could do is study about those. So I'm going online. I'm looking at the vintages, reading vintage reports, reading about that producer in particular, and kind of hoping that I can figure out how to sell that wine based on that. So you so you pour that bottle. If it's something you haven't tasted before, do you kind of like sneak a little sip or do you ask the <laughs> guest? Because I, I know that's kind of a weird thing to negotiate. It is. Um, I actually, interestingly enough, do not believe in um, drinking on the job at all. Um, if somebody gives me something important to sip, I'll probably set it aside until I'm not in service anymore because I think that you should always be on point um, when you're um, interacting with your guests. And I never want to be in that situation where... I'm not able to answer a question because, you know, I, I, I drank some wine, you know, assessed some wine or whatever. So um, thank you. Such a hospitality right here. <laughs> Jason was pouring the last of the bottle for Liz. Thank you, Jason. My pleasure. Can, can you give us a, a range of like what, what's a bottle of 
wine out of Jeremy's personal collection going to like, how do you assess a price on something like that? Uh, again, I was like went going online and kind of like seeing what similar bottles are um, priced at, you know, so I'm kind of getting an average and sort of taking it from there. Or, you know, sometimes Jeremy, you know, knows how much he paid for it and he'll tell me, but that's pretty much how it's gone down so far. A lot of a lot of studying online and a lot of I'm, I'm making flashcards for some of these older Bordeaux and things. Um, but yeah, in terms of pricing, going online and, and just looking all over and seeing what what other wine lists are pricing them at. What um, you know, you're going on Wine Searcher and things like that, and seeing you know what the average people are p- paying for it all over the world because they'll they'll give you bottle prices from everywhere and see what people are paying for it, and then just kind of hope that you can. the The interesting thing about collectible bottles like that, though, is that when if somebody's buying that bottle, they know how much it costs. Okay. So, because I was my it's next like if question. If you can afford it, you don't have to ask, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you know, if you're if you're looking at an '82 Bordeaux, I mean, you're. It's does that transcend the idea of like the food pairing too? It's more of the experience or the idea around drinking something like yeah. that. I mean, yeah, I mean, we have the food pairings. Um, you know, I went through with Chef, and we kind of talked about what we thought we should pair with certain dishes, but. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you're just drinking wine to drink it to have, you know, mm-hmm. that really old kick-ass Bordeaux. Like, you're not necessarily thinking about what you're going to be eating with it. You know, sometimes people are there to – they're seeking those things out. Right. So this bar opened up last year. I'm not going to give it any more publicity because it had a very expensive cocktail. Um, do you think Detroit's ready for a 1982 <laughs> bottle of Bordeaux? Sold out. <laughs> <laughs> um I think so, you know, and it's, you know, those are limited anyways, you know, it's not like we're sitting on like three cases of them or something like that. It's, it's like three bottles. Yeah, it's literally like three bottles of certain, certain wines. So, Somebody's you know, I think, that. I think Detroit's ready. Yeah, I do. I, I like what's happening in Detroit. I think that people are, you know, definitely um, trying new things and getting excited about what's going on here. People are really happy and they're happy to have all these really cool restaurants. In fact, um, you know, I've I've actually talked to a couple people, um, and you know, you go to these restaurants in the city, and they're packed. They're packed. People love what's happening here, and you know, there's a lot of restaurants opening. Um, so, yeah, I think we're ready. Cool. So, as you move from summer to fall, what what are you drinking at home? Is it or, do, <laughs> or is there anything special that you're? Uh, is it even wine? Are you drinking bourbon? Uh, well, uh, it's funny. I was just talking to Jason about this. Um, you know, I, I do have quite the fondness for mescal. So <sighs> I, Me too. I, I love it. I, I really love mescal. Um, I wouldn't say I necessarily drink that at home, but, you know, if I can find good mescal. I was just up in Toronto, and we drank some really cool um, mescal that was aged in amphora. And, like, just I, I like that kind of geeky stuff. But if I'm at home, I mean, I'll drink rosé all year long. Um, I was and, gonna say, and, is there like a is there like a hot version of rosé? We've got the frozen, <laughs> the summer frozen rosé. Is there like the mold rosé? Um, you heard it here first. No, I mean, there's fuller bodied styles, but you know, I'm, I, I'm to be honest with you, if I'm drinking wine at home, I don't want to be thinking about it too much. So I'm usually drinking a really well crafted French Chardonnay or 
or a really lean rosé. I mean, I'm sitting on the couch watching Game of Thrones or something. I, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to be like, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be sitting there thinking about what I'm drinking. I just want it to taste good, you know? Zombie dragons. Yeah, what? <laughs> Spoiler alert. Ice dragons. I'm not there yet. Spoiler alert. I, I've, ne- I've never seen an episode. If you haven't watched it, then too bad. I mean, you should have watched this last episode. It was, that was pretty cool. Too bad. I've this never... wedding is coming up that I'm really excited about. Oh, geez. Hey, just just, just <laughs> Hey, look at the White Walker. The, the, um, look at the the White King and see if he looks like Bran. I don't know. <laughs> what? what are you? Are you? What are you Hold doing on a right second. now? He totally looks like Do Bran. not get me started. He okay. totally looks like Bran. <laughs> <laughs> he totally looks like Bran. Jonathan oh, is so angry right now. <laughs> oh, hey, God. they have a connection. I don't know. All it's right, the Matrix. Well. I have I have something to say about that. That's, <laughs> that's, another, that's, that's the next night. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Liz. Where can people find you online? Online. What's uh, your Instagram? My Instagram is wine nomadic, like nomad n o m a d i c. Um, mostly because I've just moved so much in the last like twenty five years or so. <laughs> I've been in four different cities. Um, yeah. Is there an opening date for Prime and Proper? Um, we're going to start training, I think, mid September. So it's this is this is happening. You know, we're all kind of been real, getting busier and busier at work. And, that tile um, is amazing. Oh my god, oh. it's beautiful. You should. Oh, I, I can't wait for you to see yeah. it. The, Jeremy's Jeremy really has paid a lot of attention to detail, and it's it's really impressive. Cool. And is, is it Prime and Proper Detroit dot com? Yes. Website? All right. Well, Liz, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Uh, Until next time, dine well, friends.